0: Deep mysteries, profound paradoxes, and sometimes questions so complex that we can't even begin to pose the right questions to begin tackling them. But despite what you often hear, the social scourge of homelessness definitely isn't one of them. In the wealthy industrialized world, at least, the solution to homelessness is both simple and blindingly obvious. Build more homes. Well, some might say, not so fast. After all, where's the money going to come from? And how can we be sure that providing homes for the destitute will actually be a feasible and effective social policy? Where's the evidence, in short, that this problem can actually be solved? Well, here's a newsflash for you. There's lots of it. Finland's Juha Kakenen runs something called Y Foundation, an organization dedicated to concretely addressing homelessness. When Y Foundation began in the 1980s, Finland had around 20,000 homeless people. Now, it has slightly over 4,000 and it's one of the very few countries on the planet where homelessness has been consistently declining. But Juha is very far from triumphant about Finland's success. In his own quiet, determined way, he's angry that things aren't moving much, much faster than they are. For he knows better than anyone that far more rapid progress is possible. Talking about eliminating homelessness by 2030 might sound all very well and good as a bold political slogan, he points out. But for thousands of people living without a home today, it's nothing short of a death sentence. Think about that the next time you pass someone sleeping on the street. Many will tell you what Y Foundation is doing can only work in a small country like Finland, or perhaps only in Scandinavia. That is total nonsense. Every single wealthy industrialized country can easily do exactly what Finland is doing to address homelessness. Indeed, as Juha will quickly tell you, even considerably more. After all, what's the point in being a wealthy industrialized country in the first place if we can't actually use our wealth to ensure that our fellow citizens are treated with a basic modicum of dignity and humanity? The real problem, in other words, isn't logistics or bureaucracy or a lack of money. The real problem is simply that we don't care enough. I thought we'd begin with your beginnings in terms of your interests in, let me just say, the social world, your interests in making a difference in terms of social policy, in terms of programs, in terms of being aware of your your community and your passions and your interests, I know that you worked for some time in the Helsinki government, but I'd like to back up a little bit before that and get a sense of what you were like as a small child or at least as, a, as an adolescent uh, in terms of moving forwards thinking about what career you're going to have and what role, if any, at that time, the social world or social programs or community played in that, uh, in your development?
2: Well, if if I start from the early, early beginnings, uh, I was born in the western part of Finland in a region that's known, uh, I would say that it's known as a conservative part of the country. And it's a very flat country. It's totally in my hometown there was one hill that was uh, 52 meters high and it was called the mountain <laughs> so that gives you an impression of the of the flatness of the of the country but it's also known know the mentality of the people in that region is that they are known that they are, they are very frank they say what they mean so you can you can trust them because they they exactly they mean exactly what they say and this is one of the <laughs> one of the things that I have learned later to appreciate quite a lot and and it's also typical for me that I, I normally say what what I mean I don't have any back thoughts in in my dealings with with other people but as a very young child I was mainly interested in outdoor sports soccer and and, and things like that and. Probably the, the, the main big thing in, in my childhood was that when I was 14 years old, my mother died of, of cancer. Oh. She had been sick for a, for a while already. I was the youngest of the three, three children. And, and at that time, I lived with my father. And, and what my father was a journalist in a, in a local newspaper. And what happened was that after that, I really dived into literature. That that was that became my real passion. So when I graduated from, from school, the, the only thing I had in mind was that I will go to the university and study things that I find interesting. Without giving one single thought, what would be my occupation or what would I do <laughs> to to earn my living? So I went to the University of Helsinki to study literature, philosophy, uh, and also sociology because I really couldn't decide which one would be the, the, the main interest. The main subject was literature, and, and foreign literature also. So actually, I made my master thesis on a production of a U.S. writer who lived in the 1930s, Nathaniel West, who was a screenwriter, but wrote also some novels. So that, that, that was my master thesis. Of course, there was some... What I thought was fancy theory at that time, some theory about grotesque imagery in the in the modern literature uh, something very strange, but
0: okay, hold on i i, I I'm going to let you continue, but you've said a lot of things, so uh, I'd like to ask a few yeah. more follow up questions if I may.
2: yeah, the first yeah, yeah. is
0: yeah. you talked about coming from a, a conservative part of the country, a conservative mm-hmm. town with this mountain of fifty two meters, yeah. Where people were famously regarded as very straightforward and non hypocritical, and yeah. perhaps laconic, yeah. they said what yeah. they believed and so forth. My sense as an outsider is that's a reasonably good characterization of all Finns. So, to what extent is that stereotype <laughs> true? And uh, and and how? Or were these people particularly extreme? I mean, how would you react to that when I when I say something like that?
2: Well, well. It, there are differences in different parts of, of Finland. Certainly in the eastern part people are more I would say more social uh, but but also I would say that the region where I was born it's called Pohjanmaa. Uh, I don't know how to how to translate that's that well,
0: That's your region. You should you should say it in your own language. <laughs> it's
2: it's a, it's a very flat country but it's also known that there's a saying of of these people living there that they would be modest if only there would be some reason to be modest <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> this is also one one characteristic I, I think that uh, you you may, you may say that finnish people are quite straightforward and and we don't speak too much so small talk is uh, it's not a very common finnish thing so we normally say what, what we mean but there are differences and and I would say that one of the differences is that in the Western part, in the language, there's no conditional. Everything is as it is. Uh, no, not, not in reality, but in, <laughs> in practice. Of course, there is the language is the same, the Finnish language. But people don't use conditional. They don't say it could or would or should be. But then there's the, some parts in the Eastern part of Finland where everything is It could be or it should be or it would be the the way how people speak. So there are differences, but we don't speak too much, as as you will realize during our conversation.
0: So I owe you an extra debt of gratitude for for this for this candid, heartfelt. What I hope will be a candid and heartfelt conversation. Uh, but you seem I, you seem a I bit. I hope so. Yeah, you seem a bit like, <laughs> like uh, the exception that proves the rule. But uh, but you would obviously know better. Let, let's get. Let me get back to the literature uh, business yeah, um, yeah. Uh, or your interest, because I, I appreciate that both as a as a modest and self effacing person and uh given the nature of the conversation you didn't want to dwell too much on that but i'm curious to know what particular areas of literature you were interested in you mentioned you you went all the way up to from entering yes. university and and studying philosophy and sociology and literature to your master's thesis on nathaniel west and that was it that's a huge gap so presumably when you were younger yeah, in your formative yeah, yeah. days you were influenced by all sorts of different types of literature what sorts of things particularly resonated with you
2: well well it was mainly the 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 modern novels so there was a curious thing also that at at one time my father acted as an editor-in-chief in the in the newspaper and at that time the publishers used to send copies of new books to be reviewed so through my father i got all the new books that were translated into Finnish, and, and probably Hermann Hesse was the the, <laughs> the first author that I got to know, but but Franz Kafka was one of my longtime favorites and, 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 and still is. And then all the rest, James Joyce, what, whatever you could get your hands on, mostly novels. But then then later, there has been more, more poetry, which is probably now, nowadays the main priority for, for me in, in literature. I read, of course, novels all the time. For me, a day without reading a book is wasted. So there's always a pile of books in every part of the house, which it's, it's of course, a little a nuisance for, for my wife because there are piles of books everywhere. And we have two homes. We have our home in Hamelina, which is a small town. And then then we have this summer place where where I'm actually at the moment. So there are bookshelves everywhere.
0: Right. So returning to your story, before we get to your your master's thesis, let me ask a question related to that structurally, which is to say, I know in many countries, my wife is Dutch, uh, and in the Netherlands, when one does a degree, or at least it used to be that way. I suspect it still is. the The degree lasts five or six years, and one leaves with the equivalent of a master's degree. So it's not as if it's uh, the way it is in uh, in the Anglosphere where one does a four year degree and then a master's is postgraduate studies. It's 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 conjoined Mm -hmm. together. Was it like that for you when you were studying, when you talk about your master's thesis? Was that uh, the culmination of your studies or was that a a separate program you enrolled in?
2: No, it wasn't a separate program. Literature was my my main subject and I made my master's thesis on that. I studied for four years doing advanced studies in philosophy and and sociology at, at the same time. But master's thesis was from literature and of course I had to idea that I would continue studying literature, but it turned out that in a small country like Finland, there was not a high demand for specialists on, on some American writer from, from the 1930s. So <laughs> so <laughs> some realities of life came into, into picture at, at that point. And then I actually, I continued my studies and, and expanded also to social policy at that time. I had been interested in social issues earlier, but not in a very specific way. So, of course, I was aware of inequalities and, and things that I considered wrong in, in the society, but not in a very specific way, because I had this main interest in literature and thinking that I would be maybe not a writer, but at least a researcher on, on literature. So that was still the idea that gradually faded away. Luckily for me and also for the, the general public I think
0: <laughs> well you never know some people do their best writing in their in, in their the latter part of their lives so uh, so it yeah. there, there could be there could be a groundbreaking novel in you yet and I'm, I'm sure you're as we will <laughs> see I'm sure your powers of empathy and observation and analysis have only improved uh, as a result of all of the work that you're doing but uh, but so. So you started getting interested in some social issues. Mm. There were pragmatic reasons to recognize that the the market for somebody who was uh, an acknowledged expert in uh, in the field of uh, of an American screenwriter, a novelist from the nineteen thirties, was perhaps not uh, all that it could be. What, what one question? What, why, <laughs> why why this guy? Why why did you pick uh, Nathaniel West as your uh, as your topic? What was it about his work that particularly interested you? Well actually
2: it was already some of these pragmatic issues in in the picture because i had uh, so various interests that that i realized that i have to focus and concentrate and i had been reading some of his books and there were some elements that resonated to to other things that i had been reading there was a there was an interesting book by by a russian philosopher Mikhail bakhtin who was very much discussed at, at that time about the grotesque in in the books of rabelais the french <laughs> renaissance writer right. and this grotesque imagery in connection to some sociological theories by Lucien goldman a, a friends or actually yes a prince or belgian philosopher they gave me the the theoretical background and i I realized that this could be a good way to try to prove that by analyzing a, a one, one single writer. So there was already a pragmatic reasons that I understood that I have to concentrate. And so that that was the main reason why I focused on, on, on his work, because um, I realized that he represented a, a certain group, not a class, but a, a group of writers, and that. Was very much linked to these theories that I that I had in, in in mind at at that time. It's actually it's already a little bit hazy already because it's such a long time <laughs> when I wrote that sure. thesis that I can't remember the details
0: anymore. But so perhaps I'm reaching a little bit. But might it have been the case that at that time when you talk about Theories of the grotesque and fantastical, and Mm -hmm. the social place of people who may not, who may be out of the ordinary in all sorts of different ways. That this already signified a resonance in your mind with trying to grapple with some of these larger social issues. Am I am I being too much of a of a French dilettante philosopher and throwing a bunch of things (laughs) retroactively at you, or 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 might there be anything to that?
2: Well, probably you're right. There, there already could have been something like that because uh, I saw him as a representative of of the modern grotesque. That was something that I tried to define in the in the in that thesis. And he represented a group of writers whose position in the in the U.S. society at that time was not very good. The screenwriters were very much, uh, as you probably know, their position w- was not always always so easy. To, so they were also, in, in a sense, exploited right. their work. And so that was the probably the, the social element in, in my thinking at, at that time. If it was at all very clear, because there was a lot of things happening, of course, in my personal life. I, I already got a family at that time, and that was one of the reasons that directed my future work also.
0: Okay, so let's pick it up from there. So you're yeah, yeah. Uh, reluctantly or otherwise convinced that it's time to enter the, the real world, as it were, in, in earnest. And, uh, and so you, you do what from that point forwards? How do you, how do you go forwards?
2: Well, at that time I was just coming out from, from the army. Finnish Army, and I realized that I have to get a job. And there was a possibility to get training via which you could get qualification to work as a social worker. It was a six-month course for people who had academic qualification certificate already, but who were not in formal terms eligible to become social workers. And that was... How I got the, my first job in the in the administration of the city of Helsinki, also, and then it went that way.
0: I I'm not sure I understood when when you said who weren't eligible in the normal course to be able to do that. What what do you what do you mean by that? Oh,
2: well, I couldn't get a, a a permanent job as a social worker, although I had the master thesis. Because to become a, to be a social worker, you needed to have master's degree on a certain subject like social policy for example and even that was not enough you, you should have a master's degree from the university of Tambury which was specialized in training social workers i see but there was a kind of employment course for people who were in the risk to become unemployed who already had a master's degree from the university so that was one of, one of the first this kind of experiments that that we had in Finland at that time I see and there was of course there was a lack of social workers so that was also the other reason
0: so you took this course yes and and then you were qualified to be a social worker working for the city of Helsinki yes. is that right yes
2: yes yes exactly and first i worked in a in a normal social welfare office which meant that the main thing was that people came there to ask for social aid, social help. So normally, normally it was people who had very low incomes or didn't have any incomes at all. And I worked in that office maybe for one year before I moved to another office, which was specialized in taking care of homeless people. And the reason... I moved there it was not that I was especially interested in in homelessness at that point but it was that there was a soccer team of 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 the of the organization that was concentrated in into that office and they <laughs> they had seen me playing and they they, they recruited they, they asked me to <laughs> yeah they recruited me yeah. That's true. It's it's like life goes. A lot of things happen by accident or without any any actual clear planning. So that that was that was the practical true truth at that time.
0: So what did you think of the work uh, as you were doing it? Were you, did you find it stimulating? Did you find it uh, depressing? Did you did you find it satisfying? Did you find it some combination of all of those things how did you how do, uh, what were you thinking at the time?
2: Well it was paradoxical because the work itself was mostly it was it was not stimulating it was many times quite depressive because you couldn't see any any real changes but also there was a, a certain status with that office. It was known that it, it's quite a hard work and people who worked there were known, they were looked up in a way still because they could they could work there. And for example, my colleague who sat in in the next room to me, uh, he was specialized in having as his clients all the, the violently behave, behaving clients from the whole Helsinki social office. So not only homeless people, but from all the other offices, all those people who had acted violently at some point—they were his his clients. Wow. So it was a very very special place. Yeah. But it was very paradoxical. It was it was both, both interesting. It was demanding, but it was also many times quite dep- depressive.
1: Yeah.
2: And it was quite stressful because we had a lot of clients coming in all all the time. It was in the beginning of 1980s when this happened. And then after a few years, I became the chief of that office. And at that time also, a lot of things changed, not because of me, but because there was an organizational reform and we had a new deputy mayor who wanted something to be done with with homelessness, and and I got a lot of new responsibilities.
0: Okay, so I want to pick up on that, but right before I do, I want to ask a completely unrelated question, which is how did the how did the soccer team do? They recruited you to to, to that to that group. Was did their investment pay off? Did did you uh, did did you well, march triumphantly to yeah. the to the league cup or whatever it was?
2: Well, we played some friendly matches against. Uh, our colleagues in, in Stockholm and, and, and Malmö in Sweden. And can you imagine that at that time, the Finnish soccer team was not something different compared to Swedish, but we won actually three matches and I became the captain of the team. So this is the, the peak of my soccer career. <laughs> <laughs> These wins against the Swedes <laughs> in <laughs> Stockholm, Olympic Stadium, <laughs> and, and in 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 Malmo, so.
0: Wow! Maybe we should retitle the whole the whole t- title of this podcast to to reflect your <laughs> your soccer glory. I mean, <laughs> well,
2: it, that that would be a very short story. So <laughs> we have we have we have already dealt it. So <laughs> okay. of course I I played later also, but but this this was the 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 peak of my career in in soccer.
0: Yes, right. So let's get back to this to to the deputy mayor. Yeah. And and the changes yeah. that that she it, it was a woman, right? It, he Oh sorry, he. That 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 he uh yeah uh, elected to make. So perhaps I can get you to speculate on what maybe you don't even have to speculate, maybe you know what his motivations were for instantiating these changes. How did that how did that happen? Because this is a theme that I'd like to get to and explore Mm. how social change Mm. happens, Mm. how uh, people at all levels, be it in politics, be it in the media, be it uh, NGOs, be it individuals on the street, start thinking this is something that needs to be done. So perhaps you can hold forth a little bit on on not only what happened, but to the best of your knowledge, how it happened and why it happened. Well, uh, his name was
2: Heikias von Herzen and he was a, a member of the moderate right wing party so he was he was a conservative <laughs> his political party but but for some reason he he had a big social con, con, understanding and and i think that probably he also had some some knowledge maybe through his friends or some 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 people near him that he became interested in this issue. And also, he was a very, how would I say, he didn't want to wait wait long, he wanted to see results. And he saw that this was something that we could get results also done if we we only do some changes. And and I remember one specific incident when we were having, not him, but we were having lunch because he was working in the town hall and the social office department was another building. We were having lunch in the restaurant for for the personnel, and and our director of the social department got a phone call, and there was somebody from the town hall calling that, because he had said to his staff that, let's make an American-style hotel for, for young bachelors, young single men. He wanted to do that kind of thing, to, to solve part of the homelessness issue, and our director got a phone call from from the staff who wanted us to find out what is an American style hotel for young <laughs> young <laughs> single men. <laughs> so <laughs> that was only one incident, but he was very he was willing to put his political image in, in the picture, and he was willing to fight against his party colleagues to get things happening in the, in the city administration. He didn't recognize the hierarchy of the bureaucracy. If he had something that he wanted to be done concerning this homelessness issue, he contacted directly the, the department and, and me or somebody else who he wanted things to be done.
0: So what sorts of things so, did you do, aside from the, the hotel? Uh, <laughs> or at least you investigated the hotel. I don't I don't, I don't know what well, was actually done. But what, what sorts of policies yeah. and procedures did you do and and what did you learn from well, that whole experience?
2: Well well at that at that time we, we had in Helsinki maybe around two thousand bed places in shelters and hostels. They were a very different type, some were barracks, some were very old buildings and some were very, very crowded. They were not, not very nice places. And and there was a, an understanding that something we needed, at the same time, we all the time needed emergency places. The, this was something that I experienced several winters, that we had to find new emergency places because there was not simply enough places in these shelters and hostels. And, and for example, there were very crazy places that that we found found these places or which we had to use as emergency shelters. And of course, this is one of the experiences that I had at that time. That now, in this century, when I returned back to this homelessness field, that I I realized that I never will want to see anything like that happening again. Yeah. So there was, for example, one. Uh, I think that at least two winters, we had a place that was used before, it was not anymore used, but it used to be a waste burning power plant. And the turbine hall of this was, was used as an emergency place for, for homeless men. And before we could use it, we had to build fences around the, the machines because th- those who were responsible for that place were worried that the homeless homeless men could ruin their their machines that won that were not used anymore. And one time Sirius proposed to us there was an old morgue that was not anymore in use. That that would be one place where you could place homeless men. Hmm. So you can imagine that what what kind of attitudes there were still at that time. So what happened was that Uh, In 85, actually Y Foundation, it was one of his ideas, together with with one civil activist, which was from a social democratic party, Ilkka Taipale. These two men together got the idea of of Y Foundation, an organization that would start buying flats from the private market for homeless people. So that was one (laughs) one of the ideas. The other one was that to replace some of the, the worst existing shelters and hostels, the city would build one new shelter, a modern shelter, something that when it was done, we thought that this is really the, the avant-garde of, of the business at the moment, because it was a modern, it was a barrack, but it was a modern, and there were 40 rooms, where there were only two men in the same room. That was a luxury. There were only two men in the same room. Hmm. And they had a they had a fridge in the room, which was a luxury also because they didn't have to keep their foodware hanging from, from the window outside because they had a fridge. So <laughs> this was the the top quality at, at that time. Yeah. There was also one private company who still had a very big role in in running these shelters, and and for that reason, this was the only time that the city of Helsinki has made a shelter uh, or a hostel of it of its own, and it was meant to be a temporary solution. But as it happens many times with these temporary solutions, it was temporary for over 20 years. So that also gives the gives the idea why temporary solutions are are not good because they become more or less permanent. But then also, probably the one of the most curious or interesting things was that there was a plan to build small buildings, small units, where you could have maybe 20 men living in the same building, but so that you could have small flats there, so that everybody would have a room of their own, and they then they would have uh, maybe three or four men could have their own rooms, and then they would have common facilities, living room, and and, and kitchen. Right. And there was a plan to have built four of these kind of buildings in Helsinki. And when it was proposed, the other department, who's responsible for giving the construction sites, they were not so interested in this. So they tried to find very difficult places. So they found four places that were in, in the one of the fanciest places in, in the city of Helsinki. For example, in Kulosare, which is known that very rich people live there. So they, they wanted to make it difficult. But he had the political power because one of the construction sites was also near his own home. So they, had four, they found four more or less impossible places. One of, was near his home, Two other were in the parts of the city where more wealthy people live. But it went through. And we, we, we called these new buildings, we called them supported homes. Because there was, of course, there was staff to provide provide support. But this was one of the innovations. And th- there were other things, because at that time, the idea was that what we have research of the, of the people living in the shelters and hostels was that One third of them were there mainly or simply because they didn't have a flat of their own, a small affordable flat. There was a lack of small flats all the time at that time in in, in Helsinki. So my foundation was one answer to this, this problem. And also the city of Helsinki founded their own company to buy flats from the private market, which were used both for homeless people and bought for city city employees because the city had also problems in in getting new employees because there were no small flats and and those flats that were available were very expensive so the city had this its own company and then there was my foundation so a lot of new small flats were became available and these were mainly given to to us in in that office so that we could right give them to those homeless, mainly men who, who lived in these shelters and
0: hostels at that time. Right. So, a few questions I have. Uh, first yeah. of all, I didn't realize that the Y Foundation started then. Let's, let's put some dates on this. So yeah. When exactly are we, are we talking about?
2: 85. 85. 85. Okay. So, Y Foundation is now 36 years wow. old. So, it was established at that time. I think that we come to our foundation later, so I can yeah. tell more about. Yeah, the,
0: yeah, I, I, about, uh, I, I want to about, know. So a few, a few yeah. questions about the, because the the leadership of this individual, the deputy mayor, uh, yeah. seems key, and you mentioned that he was actually from uh, a conservative party, or at least yeah. a conservative party by Finnish yeah. standards. Uh, other yeah. listeners may have to interpret <laughs> yeah. that in different ways. Yeah. Um, yes,
1: yes, and I, and I, I, I so.
0: wonder to what extent he might have suffered or at least encountered political difficulties within his own party, given that he was representing a cause which presumably wasn't wholeheartedly endorsed by other members of his party. Was it difficult for him? You also talked about how he uh, embarked upon a collaboration with the socialist and so forth. And I'm sure there's yeah. a, a fair amount of, yeah. uh, of that sort of thing that's happening in in Finland, given that it's a relatively sane country, so far as I can determine, and and, and that there you have coalitions and you have uh, a general spirit of yeah, compromise, yeah. which seems to be the order of the day. But I, I guess my my first question is, and I have a few questions to follow up on. But my my uh, and perhaps I can wait until we get past nineteen eighty five. Otherwise, we'll be here all night. But did he suffer politically in in any way that you could see for that, or was there uh, was his effort? rewarded insofar as it was essential to start building cross-party uh, momentum towards the idea of uh, realistically and productively addressing the homelessness issue?
2: Well, certainly he had his struggles with, within the party. Of course, there's in, in this moderate right-wing party called Kokomus, there is also social reformist part, people who, who have a very progressive ideas on, on, on social issues also. He had his struggles in the in the party, but he managed to bring that kind of alliance with, with other parties that he got his ideas through. But then later he ended up in in problems and and, and had had to leave the city city administration. He was worked some time also in the in the Ministry of social welfare and, and health. But but at that time, he had a very strong political position in, in the city of Helsinki, and he could manage the struggles. There really were struggles. I, I still can remember those, oh, sure. those, some of those discussions. But luckily, he had enough power.
1: At Evernorth Health Services,
0: So Y Foundation is uh is founded in nineteen eighty-five, all sorts of progressive and interesting developments start taking place. You are the the chief bureaucrat in charge of these developments, and and then what happens? So take me take me beyond nineteen eighty-five uh and, and start laying out the, the framework to where we are today. Well it
2: was it was still, although I was responsible for for the services and there was a lot of progress as i can recall but it was also very stressful and very demanding work work. and so at the end of 1980s i worked for one year in in the administration of the one of the districts in in the helsinki social welfare department i wanted to do something else i have been doing almost a decade, work with, with homelessness and and wanted, wanted some change. And then, actually very soon after that, we decided with my that time family that we would want to move away from Helsinki to get more space and more affordable housing. So we moved to Hammenlinna, which is 100 kilometers from Helsinki. And there by accident also, because it was not planned, I was supposed to work in Helsinki still. I got a post as a director in a company called Social Development, which was a a, a consulting research company specialized on social health and employment issues owned by local municipalities. So that was also an innovation at that time in Finland. It was a trend that cities had companies, but mainly they had energy companies. But this was the first time that the city had a company specialized in social issues and there i worked 20 years actually and did a lot of writing at that time a lot of evaluations and consulting work and so i know what it is to to write papers on (laughs) developing (laughs) so social services and and i also know what impact or or if not they have any impact on the actual reality of of of, of services
1: yeah.
2: uh, but then during that time i also did one major evaluation for for the ministry of environment concerning the national policies that we had had on homelessness before that and that Led to other things because one of the proposals was it was in 2006 I think one of the proposals was that we should have a national program that would concentrate on ending long-term homelessness in Finland and that started a process where the at that time the housing minister appointed a working group where where I acted as a secretary and and wrote the proposals which led to this national program to reduce long term homelessness, which started in two thousand eight. And then I worked as a program leader for five years before I came to Y Foundation. But as I said earlier, I knew Y Foundation from from the start because mm. I was involved in the discussions when it was established and actually I was also an expert member of the board of the Y Foundation for, for over 10 years, although in the last years I didn't actively take part in the meetings anymore because I had this other job to do.
0: Right. So so who's uh, – I'm just trying to get a sense of who actually uh, pulled the trigger, as it were, or moved forwards. You mentioned this committee. Yeah. They were presumably commissioned by – uh, by someone, by the yes. minister, uh, and, and they were they were <laughs> yes. all political. How did how did that uh, how did that actually play out? Because people write briefs, people give suggestions, uh, people yeah. have all sorts of yeah. wonderful ideas or not so wonderful ideas, and and it's I think it's really worth trying to get a handle on how change can happen, uh, even if we have yeah. to get into the yeah. nuts and bolts. Yes, I think that in in many
2: cases it has to be one individual who thinks who does things in a, in a different way. And it was our housing minister, uh, Jan Vapaaburi, who by accident also belonged to the same party as Hoseik <laughs> okay. von Herzen, whom I mentioned earlier. He was the housing minister, and, and he was from, from Helsinki, so he knew the situation in Helsinki very well. And, and he was a very, I would say, very clever politician because he understood that this is a topic that you can... Reads concrete results within the political mandate of the, of, of, the, of the government, and he had this idea that he he called this this group of four wise, and and he wanted a group that consisted of people that were out out of the normal box. They were they were nobody from the ministry. Hmm. There was the bishop of Helsinki, Huovinen, and then there was my predecessor in, in my foundation, Hannu Putton. and Then there was the chief of the social department, Paavo Botilan. And then there was also this civil activist, Ilka Taipale, who, who was one of the fathers of the idea of my foundation. So these four, four guys were the, the actual group. And we had, I think that we had three meetings and then the paper was ready. So and that outlined the, the policy that was later developed in a in a more detailed working program in another group which was led by by a female politician paula kokkonen and so this was part of the thing that when this group consisted only of men so in in the actual thing when things really started to take form there were women who were who were very much involved in in making it a, it a reality. That, so that's important
0: to understand. Yeah, so I'd like to actually get back to that mm-hmm. later. But you you write a paper, that is to say the, the working group yeah. writes a paper, you're the secretary, yeah. there are these four yeah. wise men, yeah. as you call yeah. it. Uh, presumably that that paper leads to the instantiation of the program to reduce yeah. homelessness, which gets adopted by the Finnish government. Uh, officially yeah. at, at some point, and it starts in yeah. 2008 or, or something like that. Is that, yeah. is that correct? Yeah. Yes.
2: It happened quite quite quickly because it, it became a government's decision. And the program actually had a very important structure because the idea was that there would be the 10 biggest cities involved because most of the homeless people were living in these 10 cities. And there was a letter of intent between the state and uh, all the cities. So there was a, a real contract actually, and there was a implementation plan where each of these cities said what they would do within the next four years. And there was also a commitment from, from the state so that the financing of the program would be divided between the state and the cities. And this was an important structure because yeah. Uh, After 2008, 2009, one of the hardest economic recessions hit Finland. And it was important for for the cities that there was also financial commitment from from the state. There were several ministries that were involved and and the cities and, and, and and a lot of NGOs. So each city, they knew what would happen within the next four years, which new buildings would be built, what kind of financing they would get, and also how much money grants they would get to hire new support workers, because we totally changed the system. And I I would say that the most important thing was that, or two things was that we adopted what we called housing first uh, policy, which means that you have your own permanent flat and then support if that's needed. And at the same time, we change the structure of the of the homeless services in Finland We, we wanted to get rid of this temporary accommodation in shelters and hostels and some of the buildings were renovated and converted into supported housing which means that a good example is the Salvation Army hostel that they had in Helsinki when it was a hostel they had 250 bed places so there could be several men sleeping in the same room. That building was renovated with a grant from the state so that they now have 81 independent apartments in that same building. And still they have on-site staff to provide support. And this, was, this had a huge impact on the structure of the services. And I think that this is one of the things that makes the difference between the, the, the Finnish system and several other countries who still have temporary accommodation as a main option for for homelessness.
0: So I want to get into the details of what worked and what didn't work and and lessons learned and all the rest of that. And then after that, I'd like to get into a wider ranging conversation about how, if at all, one can meaningfully extend the lessons that have been learned elsewhere and talk about the different roles of different aspects of society in different countries and so forth. But before I do any of that, I'd like to back up a little bit and take me back to 2008 and give me a sense of the level of public support or popular support to some of these programs. So as you rightly mentioned, we're dealing with a time right after Mm -hmm. one of the worst recessions that uh, many of us have ever witnessed everywhere, basically. Um, Certainly, including Finland, I would imagine. And you alluded to different aspects of intolerance back in 1985. Why don't these guys just go into a morgue, or why don't they go here? Are they going to ruin our our dilapidated machines yeah. or, <laughs> that we have no use for? And this this kind of this kind of business, I can imagine that when a program like this, the the program to reduce homelessness, would be officially unveiled in 2008 with a a, a large scale partnership between municipalities Mm -hmm. and the federal Mm -hmm. government, all sorts Mm -hmm. of money to the generation of new housing units and so forth. There might be some complaints and pushback and people saying this is a ridiculous waste of taxpayers' money and that sort of thing. Was that the case? Or was there, more generally speaking, uh, a high level of public approval for this sort of thing? Well, first
2: of all, I think that the important thing was that there was a a very wide political consensus on this issue both on the national level and i think that also in the in the in the city council levels because there was also this money input from 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 the state involved Uh, but of course the 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 general public i think that when they saw the first of the there was for example in the in the Newspaper, there was a map from, from Helsinki where all these new units would be built or renovated. And I think that the, the people got the conception that, well, yes, there's one going to be built near our part of the city, but there seems to be a lot of other ones also. So that gave the impression that this is now really serious business, that something is going to happen. Right. And of course, people could see quite soon the change also in, the, in some parts of the city, in the, in the street scenery. Those homeless men that you had seen there seemed to disappear because they got flats of, of, of their own. And like the Salvation Army unit, when, when, when it was renovated, it, it, the, what happened in the environment, it was a totally different thing after that. People could see this kind of thing happening in in, in practice, in real life. And the other one was that quite soon we made a... Of course, already when we had the first this kind of supported housing unit built in Tampere, we we had an economic evaluation of of the impact of this supported housing compared to people living in, in homelessness. And it showed that giving a flat to a homeless person, even with support, the cost savings for the society are at least fifteen thousand euros per one person per one year when you compare how they use the services like emergency healthcare, etc. So this kind of economic argument also had some importance, probably more in the in the local decision making, but but anyway it was also an important part because it seemed that there was a lot of money that was used, but at the same time, there was a lot of savings coming, coming for, for the society.
0: Right. So let's talk about the actual results, uh, both in terms of numbers and in terms of a practical, tangible sense of the difference that these policies were making, but also in terms of the personal experiences that you witnessed, the, the sense, the, the intangibles, the essential intangibles if you will the sense of dignity the sense of life enhancement mm-hmm. the the sense of community that you were able to foster through some of these programs so give me a sense uh, of both of those and and how specifically and more generally these various initiatives made a difference and and perhaps even while you're at it since i like to ask all sorts of questions in a row you can you shouldn't hesitate from also weighing in on some of the mistakes that were made, or or, or what things might have been mm. done mm. better, uh, and what you learned from the experience, written large.
2: Well, if we speak about numbers and figures, at in two thousand eight, I think that we had around seven eight thousand homeless persons in Finland in statistics, and now we have single homeless persons four thousand three hundred. It has been a huge drop in in the total number but what's also important to realize is that in in finland we count as homeless also people who are living temporarily with friends and relatives who registered themselves as homeless who seek for permanent permanent housing and they are two-thirds of all the homeless people but the number of long-term homeless people which for us means that people have been living have been homeless for continuously over one year, or repeatedly homeless during the last two years, and who have serious social and health issues. Their number has dropped by 65% since 2008. So we now have around 1,000 people who we regard as as long-term homeless. And the actual number of people who may sleep rough is extremely low. So this is the impression that when we have foreign visitors and they, they they come and they they say that they are not seeing homeless people on, on the streets so of course we still have also people who sleep rough but their number is is quite low low at the moment so this has been probably the the, the big development in, in in numbers but i think that of, of course you you hear those individual Success stories when 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 people who have been sleeping rough have got a flat of their own, and how they have gradually used to to live in 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 the flat. And of course, of course, you hear also when things don't go well. But overall, I would say that around 80% of people who have got a flat through this new national policy, they have been able to keep the flat. Yeah. So I don't think that this Anyway, we will go back in the old system, which was, as you may have heard, the old traditional system was called the staircase model, where people were moving from, from the streets to shelters and then to different forms of supported housing and then gradually gaining independence or, or, or their own, own flat. And, and that system didn't work very well. So the idea, idea now is that you have your own rental contract and then, if you need, you can get support. For example, if you if you have problems with, with the use of alcohol, you are not supposed to become sober before getting the, the flat, right. because the, the apartment is the foundation for, for solving the other issues. And it, it should work that way. We still have problems with finding enough small, affordable flats, and that's still blocking people in some places, People are living in, in supported housing, although they would prefer and they could live totally on their own, but still we have this, this scarcity of, or lack of, small apartments. And for that reason, for example, Y Foundation, we are also building the affordable social housing to, to cover that need at the moment.
0: Right. So I, I understand the, the whole premise of Housing First, as you alluded to, rather than saying to people, if you clean up in such and such a way, if you get off drugs or if you do this and that, then, then maybe you'll be in the sequence of eventually being able to get a home. The idea is that a home is provided for people first to enable them to have a sense of dignity, to have a sense of home. And the hope is from, uh, from there, they will be able to flourish and and improve and but of course for that to happen there has to be additional services there has to be vocational training there has to be community interaction there has to be uh, all sorts of programs and policies. And often, and one hears about these horror stories about these programs existing in other parts of the world, but people don't have an address, so they're not able to qualify for them and you're in this vicious circle. Mm -hmm. Presumably Mm -hmm. this vicious circle is broken by your policies and also because uh, Finland, I would imagine, would be a particularly progressive place to live. And so these policies would exist as well. So is that the case? Uh, Are there, uh, is there a plethora of programs and policies and opportunities for people once they have a home and once they are getting a sense of dignity and possibility, to then move forwards and engage in all sorts of other ways.
2: Yes, yes, there are there are several programs, and and many of the service providers, NGOs, they have their own own programs. But there's one important thing in, in this Finnish model of housing first. We have basically two types of housing. We have totally independent scattered housing flats. They are among the other flats scattered around the city. My foundation has over 5,000 that, that kind of flats. They are in a normal housing companies in, in the private sector where we have border flat and there's a homeless person who has a rental flat there. And then we have this, what I described earlier, this supported housing in single-site buildings. So that we have, for example, a place called Vinola where we have 33 flats in the same building, independent flats, but there are also common premises for people living there and they also have on-site staff there to provide support. And this is probably the, the main difference also between the Finnish model and and the housing first, which actually originally was a US model, which which is totally based on scattered housing. Because in, in the Finnish context, we have realized that there are homeless people who also fear the isolation and loneliness in, in scattered housing. They are getting a fancy apartment in some part of the city where they have never lived before. They know nobody there and they have no mm. connections. But in these supported housing buildings, there's an element of community building also, which, is, which we have realized is important. And, and for some homeless people, actually, these are the only friends or only people who have similar experiences and it's easy for them to relate with them and build their, their life there. And of course, they can move further these scattered housing flats if, if they are willing to do that. But this community building is important. And I think that what's important is that when you get a flat of your own, your, your hunger for meaningful life grows. And, and for that reason, we have different kind of employment programs and vocational training also for, for homeless people. Of course, there are also several of these long-term homeless people who already had pensions because they can't work anymore. But for those who are still able and willing to join, join the labor market, so there are a lot of programs at, at the moment. And for example, Y Foundation, we offer temporary jobs for, for our tenants, both in the housing for homeless people and in, in our social housing stock. And also we have a network of companies who give jobs to, to, to our tenants. So this is important. I think that in many cases, meaningful doing, especially work, if you get a normal salary also, is the most important form of support that you can get. Yeah. It's the best support that you can get if, if you have a possibility to do something meaningful.
0: And I could imagine that the people who are successful and are able to flourish and move forwards in a very productive way with their lives, many of them, I would think, would become quite proud and active community citizens in that Ecosystem. They would want yes. to help newcomers who would come. They would be yes. passing along uh, all sorts of advice and opportunity to to encourage other people to be able to flourish as they have done.
2: Yes, that's true. That That's what happens in these supported housing units. And also, there are a lot of former homeless people who live, for example, in, in our flats that are active in the NGO that the, the, the homeless people themselves have. So they are very actively also taking part in, even in in some cities they are taking part in, in together with the city officials in in planning the, the the services. So they are hugely involved, and I think that this is this is extremely important for them. But I would say that this one important thing concerning this how we change the. As as we say, we we like to say that we have made a systemic change in the homelessness system in in Finland. And I think that this is very much related to the the nature of of, of social problems. And I at least have the approach that when when dealing with social issues, we should first try to solve the the obvious things. And with homelessness, (laughs) the, the obvious thing, the only common thing with homeless people is they all have their individual stories, but the only common thing is that they lack a home. Yeah. So let's start by solving that issue, which can be solved in a, in a pragmatic way. This pragmatism is also important. It's part of the issue. And there's even some important results from, from Australia that points out that, as the researchers said that in their conclusions, that 74% of, of the cases... Flowing into homelessness, people who became homeless could have been avoided if they had been provided public housing, affordable public housing. Imagine if you take that from country by country. If you take two thirds of all the older homeless from the statistics away, it's a whole another issue to deal with the rest of the homelessness. Yeah. I, I think that this is this is so fundamental for. fundamental for me that we should start by solving those issues that really can be solved in a pragmatic way and in a reasonably short time span
0: also. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you're obviously the expert, but for me, there's a, I, I think, a different level of frustration that I feel with this. Maybe it's not different, but, uh, but, but let me just hold forth a little bit on what that is. So you, you talk about how there are practical, pragmatic, necessary, and important, and efficacious things that can be done. We're not talking pie in the sky. We're not talking unreasonable or unrealistic. And in fact, mm-hmm. in much the same way people argue about the long-term economic benefits of health care and all sorts of other things, uh, prophylactic preventative care often winds up being more uh, e- economically beneficial, not to say that that should be the primary argument upon which all these things are based. But even if you were looking at it from a very hard-hearted, nuts and bolts, dollars and cents type of perspective, it turns out Mm -hmm. to be actually a better investment, economic investment in your society to be thinking about doing these things. So all of that I agree with and a great deal more. My problem is the the question of will and the the belief that this is a sufficiently important issue that it has to be Mm -hmm. dealt with. And we've had a little bit of email back and forth. So you know how I feel about these issues. Um, but I, the analogy I make is, is, is almost to like, uh, like building a swimming pool, for example, right? So you can talk about how do you build a swimming pool? Well, you dig such and such a, a depth and you line it in this particular way and you do this and you, and you do that to it. But um, at the end of the day, you have to want to have the swimming pool to begin with. If you're not interested mm-hmm. in swimming, if, if it's not the sort of thing that you're particularly motivated to do, if mm-hmm. you don't look at that as a problem in your life that you, by gosh, you really have to have a swimming pool, then all of these practical, pragmatic, necessary aspects of how you go forwards, they're not going to be terribly convincing to people. And so that's why I'm constantly asking about public will, who's driving this, the role of the the yeah. political class, the role of the media, the role of the individual on the street, because I think one of the most pernicious aspects of homelessness, and it's by no means the only social issue that falls into Mm -hmm. this category, there are a a wide number of them, as you know far better than I, but the, the biggest problem is that there's a sense of defeatism. There's even a sense of not even being aware or acknowledging the problem. People step over homeless people on the way to work, like part of the scenery. There is not this sense of indignation that we have to do something about this as a society. And so before we even get to what should we do and how can we move forwards and how can we develop appropriate public-private partnership with contractors and all the rest of that, um, I think there has to be a sense of indignation. There has to be a widespread societal sense that something has to be done and and that's what frustrates me because most of yeah. the time, when I look in other parts of the world, I don't actually see this at all. So, do you share that view? Do you think I'm I'm too pessimistic, uh, or or or, uh, or does it does it rankle with you just as just as much as it rankles with me?
2: Well, I can understand your frustration. it's, it's not a, a sentiment that's uncommon to me also because. I have heard so much talk about ending homelessness that that it's really frustrating. I I have been talking in in so many countries and when I when I presented how we have done things, I don't mean that Finland is a paradise. We have a lot of work to do. We are still not finished and I'm frustrated with, with the speed that we are progressing at the moment because I think that we could end homelessness absolutely in a Reasonably short time if there was enough will, but in many places I hear people say that. Well, that's fascinating. That's important. We really start to have to think about that. It's not about thinking anymore. We know what the solutions are. We know how how this can be done, but it's there's still too much talk and and so much so so little action. And and of course. <laughs> even in some countries i would say that the homelessness sector is, is part of the part of the system in, in the sense that when i say to some people that we should end homelessness i can see people's faces that they are not believing that it would be possible yeah they are setting timelines that are so so far away as i said that when if we say that we want to end homelessness by 2030 in some countries street homelessness Actually, that's that's a death sentence for, for many homeless people. Yeah. So it's basically, it's, of course, it's a question about values. It's a question about human dignity. And there are so many very affluent countries where there's still a very st- strong thinking that human value is not something undivided. In, in the old days, we would we have spoken about class society. There are people who deserve and people who don't deserve. Right. And that's... That makes me very, very, <laughs> I would say that it makes me sad. And, and of course, it's a little bit maddening. But I think that it also comes to the question about the huge and growing inequality in, 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 in the global world. Absolutely. And, and it's, a, it's, of course, it's economic equality. We have a handful of people who have astronomical wealth, who seem to be living on a different planet, so it's of course it's only logical that some of them really want to move to another planet. <laughs> they they want to say. do <laughs> <laughs> they want to do that in reality, <laughs> not only metaphorically, but they want to do it in reality, live on another planet. So, so this is I think that it's 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 not only economic inequality, it's in health and it's also it's 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 ethical inequality. Because it seems that ethics has become a luxury. There are people who very marginalised people who have to do that kind of work that's against their values, and we would go on a lot of this. But I think this is one of the basic things that that bothers me me more and more.
0: Well, I completely agree, and I think that's the crux of the argument. I, I, I mean, this is what personally this is what makes me feel so indignant, and it's not as if I am someone like yourself. I haven't devoted huge mm-hmm. tracts mm-hmm. of my life. I haven't devoted much of my life at all for helping the poor and the unfortunate in any meaningful way. So I am not in any way pretending to be holier than thou myself. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. the lack of indignation, the lack mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. societal recognition and determination that this is just beyond the pale this is appalling yeah. in a society yeah. as wealthy as we happen to find ourselves with so much opportunity and also so much social will so many people who are who are motivated to actually assist and so many possibilities of doing so the fact that we yeah. look at these problems as insoluble is yeah. uh, is reprehensible and and so, so I'm going to perhaps wax on a little bit more with my indignation. But before I do, let me stop myself mm-hmm. and let me ask you something specific about the Nordic countries. There are two aspects to this question. The first is the the notion of being progressive, which is a word which I generally detest mm-hmm. because it makes it mm-hmm. seem that everybody else is regressive if they're not progressive. <laughs> but not, nonetheless, the notion of having progressive policies, in terms of social justice, in terms of equal opportunity, in terms of doing something to try to reduce income inequality, in terms of respecting the dignity and the potential dignity that any member of your society can have, seems to be something which is at least, if if not best embodied, at least well embodied by the Nordic countries writ large. That seems to be something that most people believe just anecdotally. So, my question is, why do you think that is? What is it about Scandinavia? What is it about the Nordic countries that that produce an environment where these types of beliefs and these types of values, I'm sure they're not universally endorsed, but they're more widely endorsed than in most places? I mean, you can say it's historical, but that doesn't really answer any question. If you go farther back in time, Vikings were out there marauding all sorts of people yeah. all over the place. They didn't have particularly a high sense of dignity or social values. So what what is it about the Nordic countries that, that have managed to produce and sustain these values that so many other places seem to be lacking?
2: Well, I'm not a great exp- expert to to answer your your question. I agree a lot what what you say that there are some things that are very common to to different Nordic countries. Of course, there are also differences between between Nordic countries.
0: Sure, some of them can't play soccer very well, for one thing.
2: Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> Finland is making progress on on that sector also. <laughs> the first time in the European Championship. So, <laughs> so that was a great thing for us. But I think that, well, I don't know if there's one, one single answer to that thing, but all my life I have got, got the feeling that there is a sense of a certain basic dignity in, 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 in the society, how you treat other people. You said that historical reasons is, is not an explanation, but, but <laughs> you have to look for, for the answer in, in, in the history right. in some way. And all, of course, there's also, I would say that at all the time, there is a very strong struggle also to, to preserve this Nordic way because there's a very strong influence coming from, from the Anglo-American world also in Finland, in, in popular culture and, and in, in many sectors that you can see reflected in, in the discussion in, in, in the society. So it's it's not self-evident that this kind of thing survives. We have to work for, for that. But I think there's a certain certain Finnish way how you, how you react to, to other people. And, and I think in, in some cases we can be very naive also because we trust other people. Quite easily, so this is not. I can't. <laughs> I can't figure out now for for you a good answer to this this question. But I, I sure. recognize the difference as you as you pointed out.
0: Well, it's it's a it's an unfair question to be asking you, but uh, I, I think it needs to be addressed. And and mm-hmm. another thing that needs to be addressed, I think. In fact, I think it's the elephant in the room. And it's very frustrating to me because it's not addressed very often, mm-hmm. and that is what has been happening in you called it the anglo american world I called it the Anglo, often the mm-hmm. Anglosphere
2: yeah
0: but um but things have been changing rather precipitously in the last five mm-hmm. or ten years
1: mm-hmm.
0: and one of the things that frustrates me is that this is not recognized. And so let me tell you what I what I mean by that. What I mean is that a culture of divisiveness, a culture of scapegoating, a culture of hate has been increasingly coming to the fore in places like the United Kingdom and the United States. It is... Uh, I think it's impossible to deny that, whatever your particular individual political leadings may happen to be. And you can look at this in all sorts of different ways. And I think this idea of willful demonization of uh, one's political opponents, anybody who disagrees with you, mm-hmm. scapegoating the, the European Union of all things. I mean, talk about a an, an absolutely insane thing to be looking at as a demon. I mean, the European Union is clunky, it's often inefficient, it's sometimes laughable, but the idea that it's going to mm-hmm. eat your mm-hmm. children and take away your, your basic rights and yeah. freedom is, yeah. is laughably inane. The lies, the distortions, mm-hmm. the, the vitriol, the venom, which has been pouring forth in the anglophonic world for quite some time now, and worse still, has been successful politically, is something which I think flies very much in the face with the idea of empathy and dignity and respect for other human beings that such policies as, as you represent need to uh, have as their cornerstone. And then on top of that, uh, this is something that, so I, I threatened you with a rant, so I'm going to go on a tiny little bit of a rant. I will end with a question, uh, but it may take me a little while to get there. There is a sense of narcissism So when people talk about narcissism, they famously like to look at people like Donald Trump, and I'm not obviously going to dispute that, but I look at the entire society as actually being narcissistic. And Mm -hmm. the society is so obsessed with themselves and is so concerned with uh, what is parroted in, if you're on the left, uh, the New Yorker, the New York Times, or if you're on the right, whether it's Fox News or what have you, They are not inclined to even consider looking at other countries, other ways of being, how should we actually take seriously the developments and the advancements that other people are doing. Now, the United States has famously always been isolationistic and has perhaps been quite self-absorbed, but there has been a line which has been crossed. And that makes it more and more difficult for them to even consider seriously asking Would it be possible to take on board the sorts of social policies that you and your colleagues have done and other people have done in other places? Could it even possibly be applicable to our own particular scene? And instead, they are merely wallowing in their own sense of inevitability and narcissism. And this is the sort of thing that I think needs to somehow be called out. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm not the person to call it out and it's entirely unclear to me whether anybody would pay the slightest bit of attention if I did but this is particularly frustrating because it's there is always this dismissive sense of oh yes well you know it's finland and everybody's homogeneous and everybody's fine and that you know that would never work here we're not mm-hmm. even going to consider that we're not even going to engage with that we're not even going to ask ourselves what sort of a society do we want other than to try to demonize our our opponents as best as we possibly can we're not even going to try to envision that possible change can, can happen. And, and instead, what we're going to try to do is rationalize, live within the paradigms in which we find ourselves. Uh, okay, you know, maybe that's a reasonable thing to be doing, especially if you're a, a tolerant, well-meaning person who lives in, in these particular places. But it doesn't bode well for any sign of legitimate social progress, because in order to even consider embarking upon these pathways, you have to ask yourself how do we move forwards you have to you have to be you have mm-hmm. to you have to come to a conclusion that this shall not stand anyway uh okay so i've I've droned on too long but there, there are there are so many aspects to this and 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 part of it came out in in let, let me reflect something very concrete. Part of it came out in these table talk conversations that yeah. you started uh to yeah. to have and I understand. Why you're doing that, you're trying to encourage public debate on these issues. You're trying to present people who are thoughtful, well-meaning individuals who clearly want positive societal change, who are experienced individuals, and who have interesting ideas and interesting sentiments that you want to give a platform to, and you want to do your best to encourage their views to be shared. And so I'm obviously very sympathetic to that. My problem is, I see this as very much as preaching to the choir. And I find it mm-hmm. extremely difficult to imagine how one can mm-hmm. break out of a situation where the only people who are willing to even contemplate or engage with the sorts of things that you're doing are the very, very small number of people who would necessarily mm-hmm. be, uh, be motivated to even go outside of their own Social ecosystem and look for other things. and and I don't see that as being very positive. I don't see that as being able. If we're depending on that tiny fraction of people, I don't see how we're going to be able to make any real progress. Do you understand what I'm what I'm? Yes, what I'm saying? I understand. I'm not blaming you. Obviously, yeah. you're doing the best <laughs> you can. But I, but I, I'm I, I'm just not I, I'm just not clear how how we can actually uh, productively go forwards.
2: Well, I, I understand your frustration, and uh, there are things that you re- described that I recognized very well. And what's alarming is that what this, what you describe, the de- demonizing of your opponents, etc. There are people who want to copy that also in, in in Finland. So it's a thing that, especially in the in the political discussion, it's it, it's it's happening. So. I I understand what you mean by this speaking to true believers, but I think that how I see it is that engaging in this discussion where people are not listening to you at all, there's no way how I could get my my message of ending homelessness through for for some some people because they they don't recognize the issue at all. So I think that uh, the only way how you can make progress is that you do things. Yeah. you show so in reality that this happens. It's so easy to block everything coming from Finland saying that, well, it's socialist. That's the label that you can hear when some about the Finnish school system or whatever is presented yeah. in, in, in US medias. You always hear that, well, that's the socialist thing. So, so that's the label that that it easy to put. But but I think that the only way I don't take part in, in, in this kind of discussions in, in not not very much at, at all because I think that the only only way how you can make real progress is by doing things instead of talking about doing things. By showing showing <laughs> in practice that this this works. And and for, for that reason we have, for example, this Housing First Europe Hub, because we want to to make things happen in, in reality. Yeah. We can waste all our time and energy in producing new evaluation reports, how great this system of housing first is. But what we should do is to do things in practice, make things happen. And that's that's <laughs> that's also possible. Even in some cases with the help of the European Union, as you <laughs> as you mentioned earlier.
0: Right. It's, well it's, let's talk it, about that because uh, yeah. That seems an obvious point. I mean, I guess one of the things I was rattling on about with the United States or the United Kingdom Mm -hmm. is I don't think that that's a particularly helpful or optimistic place Mm -hmm. to focus one's attention for all sorts of reasons, very obvious reasons to any reasonable thinking person, including many people who live, of course, in the United States and the United Kingdom. I'm not in any way slamming all of the people who live there, there are many incredibly conscientious and dedicated and determined and insightful and empathetic individuals who live in those countries. So that's obvious. But if one wants to look structurally, one has to be a bit of a masochist to be focusing in those particular directions. So let's look at Europe and let's look at to what extent your accomplishments you're being the Finnish accomplishments, as well as some of your own personal accomplishments, given that you've had such a seminal role in many of those, could be applied to at least some extent in many European countries. What would you do, for example, if you were the president of the European Commission, if you or or if you had the ear, and perhaps you even do, of Ursula von der Leyen, and and you could you could say, let's talk about having this program or that program, or perhaps the EU is not the right level. Perhaps the right level is on a national basis, on a country-by-country basis. I don't know. You tell me, but what are the concrete, plausible, reasonable ways forward to try to uh, apply and leverage the successes that you've achieved in Finland throughout Europe?
2: Well, I, I think that, of course, money plays a huge role. And there are ways how the European Union European Commission could also more actively target money to to those places where it's needed to, to make significant progress in reducing homelessness. There are ways that, that the European Commission could do that also. But there's a, there's a funny thing because I think that in political decision making, when, when politicians want facts, they actually want numbers. Numbers are the real facts for politicians. And then they think that they make a huge decision when they decide to put a certain amount of money for a certain function. But for example, I think that there's a new initiative coming from, from the European Commission of, for developing affordable housing. And I, I saw some, somewhere that it was... Ten million euros or something like that. It sounds when you make a decision. It sounds that's great. Ten million euros. But then when you start to think about what that means in practice, it means that ten million euros you can build one affordable social housing building <laughs> for around eighty people, and to <laughs> divide that money in 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 the in the whole whole European Union. Yeah. The main thing is that I think that. This kind of institutions like like European Union, the Commission, there should be more this kind of thinking which in philosophy is known. You probably remember the, the Occam's razor. Sure. So it it's the same idea that I said earlier that we should focus first to solve the obvious things
1: yeah.
2: that can be solved. And 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 for for, for that reason a lot of time is, is wasted in in writing new opinions, analyses, parliamentary resolutions on things that have been said even earlier. So it's simply somebody somebody has to start doing things. And and there are ways how the, the European Commission, it, it always says that it's not in their capability, these issue of homelessness, for example. They can't make a European strategy on, on homelessness because it's not in the capability of the of the union it's it's a national issue but that's simply poor semantics there are ways how you can make it a european issue it's very much related to the issue of migration for example also yeah. Yeah. so there are ways if you really want to make a change to do that
0: so i'm almost sorry i brought up the european union because it always depresses me uh <laughs> well, when, well, when it's, you it's very at actual
2: these... at It's very actual at the moment, so it's easy to speak about it.
0: But let's look at individuals. I mean, previously you mentioned the importance of political leadership. We haven't talked about the media. I'd like to talk a little bit about that as well. Mm -hmm. There's the question of social pride. I would imagine that notwithstanding the the carcinogenic effect that some of the anglospheric political climate has had and seeping into Finland, unfortunately, uh, mm-hmm. Nonetheless, there is still, I would imagine, a large fraction of people who are proud of what their society has accomplished yeah. and who recognize yeah, the uniqueness true. and the impressiveness and the, the inspirational degree of dignity that they are giving to so many people and who are proud yeah. of being leaders on the social front. But when you look at countries in the European Union, when you look at, uh, when you look at political figures, when you look at individuals... Do you have any hope? And you say, "Oh, these guys in the Netherlands, you know, they've or they're getting their act together." Or there's one particular mayor of some town, or there's a, a leader of a political party, or there's something interesting happening in Spain or in Portugal or, in, or 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 in Italy or or in Poland or or what have you. Do do you see points, concrete points of light in terms of people at the political level who you can point to, who you believe can drive change, yeah. real change?
2: Yeah. I see that and I can I have seen that also in, in this homelessness issue. There are even mayors in, in UK who are very progressive and do whatever is possible to to further the idea of housing first for example there. And there are other other places also. I think that in the future we, we start to realise that especially the big cities have a crucially important role in in, in making progress. In, in many or most of the social issues. So I think that there's a little bit that kind of movement already there. So I'm not I'm not totally pessimistic, although there are very dark shades at, at, at the moment in the big picture, but I'm, I'm still nurturing some kind of optimism. And, and of course, that's urgently needed if you think about the, the real big elephant the, the, the climate change and what, what's that's yeah. requiring from us in the, in the very near future. Yeah. So let's, let's not let's not force too much pessimism.
0: <laughs> so in the spirit of, of, of being more optimistic,
1: mm-hmm. let
0: me let me in turn try to be very concrete and ask you a concrete question yeah. for a change which is if I were to make you, let's just say king of Finland uh, so that uh, you, you could, uh, so not only am I making you king, of course, I'm, I'm changing the whole governmental structure, emperor, if you will, of Finland. And you have the opportunity to build on what has already happened and do anything you can to further improve the situation. What sorts of things would you do? Well,
2: actually there was an effort to get a king to finland before finland became a republic so (laughs) (laughs) that's that's ancient history but but what what, what would i do Uh, i have this crazy idea that we should have some common basic assets that are available for 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 citizens and i think that the huge change would be if we really had affordable housing available for most of the population so that it, it wouldn't be the target of investment speculation which which housing still is even in finland so that that would be i would make a total change in the in, in the housing structure at the moment in in the big cities there's around twenty five percent of the new housing is affordable social housing which means that it's it's good quality Housing. it's it's the same quality as, as the private housing but the rent level is significantly lower than, than the market rents. But if it could increase that part of the housing let's say to at least 50 percent that would make a huge change in, in many other things and housing is also it's important in, in preventing many things not only in preventing homelessness, it's related to to health. And it's, it, it has a huge impact. But, but Finland is also still a, a very much owner-occupying society. So around 70% of the people own their own, own homes. Yeah. And and that's, for many, it's the life story. You save to be able to buy a flat. In some cases, it's your life project. And this also, especially when the society is changing rapidly at the moment, there's polarization, there are rural areas where people move out, the flats, the homes lose their value, and then there are places like Helsinki where the prices go hugely up. So this is still increasing the inequality in the society, and it's causing new problems. That would be the the most important. And it would also be, as you know, there has been experiments with this basic income, so Providing affordable housing could be part of this solution because we know that in the future, we don't have enough work for everybody. So we have to find some solution for for this providing basic security, basic income. So it would be a combination of this basic income, basic affordable housing. It's a little bit abstract idea, but I still have time to develop that. Idea in, in the coming years.
0: Sure. And if you were the king, we'd have all sorts of tolerance for you and being able to do that. <laughs> Necess- necessarily. Yeah, well. Let's talk a little bit about the media. Let's come back to Earth a little bit and talk about the media. To what extent has the treatment of Y Foundation in the media changed? And is it changing now? Am I right in my? my belief that many people in Finland are proud of what has been accomplished in terms of being socially progressive and what Y Foundation has done. Is there a general sense of social support for the developments that have been made? And is that reflected in the media? Is it, a, is it controversial? Does the media play this incredibly strident game of divide and conquer that they have unfortunately learned from the anglospheric world? Is that sort of thing going on? Tell me about what I would be likely to hear about Finland's attempts uh, to deal with homelessness and other social issues if I were to pick up a a standard Finnish paper or listen to Finnish television or or go on blogs or social media that's Finnish related or or what have you.
2: Well I can give you an example of a couple of years ago there was a French reporter who visited Finland and the local television came to interview her because they wanted to know what's the reason that she was interested in in this how Finland <laughs> deals with with, with homelessness. <laughs> so the one thing is that homelessness in Finland is is the main responsibility of municipalities, the big cities. And my foundation works very closely with with many of them. For example, those scattered housing flats that we have, most of them, we have subleased them to municipalities who select the tenant and provide the support. So there's very close cooperation. So I think that my Foundation is more recognized abroad than, than in, in Finland. So
1: hmm.
2: how the Finnish model has been recognized abroad, that's sometimes in, in the news. And then this once once a year there are normal stories. We have the uh, homeless night in 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 October, and then there are the normal stories. And still, in many cases, I think that the media presents the the very stereotyped image of homeless homelessness. So it's a in many cases it's a middle-aged man with with issues of Substance abuse—that's still the stereotyped image. Although most of the homeless people, they have totally different issues in in their lives, yeah. and that—that's not—that's something that I think that we we try to present. And also, I think that the housing first model, in a way, that has gone through. So you you can hear people referring to this this housing first model in media, but still there's a there's a quite a lot of stories that still focus on the on the stereotyped image, but I would say that most of the stories are more favorable or present an empathic view on on homelessness and and people experiencing homeless homelessness at, at at
0: the moment. Picking up on the this notion of stereotypes, you mentioned earlier that it's important to, or well, these are my words, I'm paraphrasing, but yeah it's important to recognize who one is dealing with. Many people who are homeless, they, they live with family members. They, uh, they're yeah, not yeah. necessarily out on the street. You wouldn't see them. They're not as, as, as yeah. visible. So this made me think of two things. In the first, first instance, it made me think it's important and doubtless challenging for you to be making a real effort to understand what the numbers are. And often that's not very obvious. Mm-hmm. And the other thing it made me think of is there is also a role to play for the people who are friends, who are relatives, who, who are, have provided temporary housing for these individuals to, to play in this larger community that you, are, that you are building as well. That they too can play a very significant role in community building. Is that, is that a fair summation?
2: Yes, and of course, this, especially this issue of what you could call also hidden homelessness or, or sofa surfing, or, or you have different names, names for that. Of course, it's, it's not easy to present an accurate figure how many people live in that kind of situation. But it's important to understand that their situations vary very much because there are people for whom it, it's, it's a lifestyle choice at, at the moment. It's not a problem for them. But then there are people, especially I think that with, with homeless women, who in, in, in this category of homelessness, they face different risks of exploitation, for, for example. And of course, it's also important to understand that this hidden homelessness, that's the last stage before you are totally homeless. And for that reason, we think that it's important also to target our efforts for this group.
0: Just a few more questions. You've been very generous with your time. So thank you very much. I'd like to come back to something that we alluded to very briefly earlier, which is female politicians. So yeah. let me just put it out there as, a, as, a, yeah. as an idea. My guess is that it's not a complete coincidence that Finland has very progressive inspirationally progressive social policies in a, in a wide variety of different areas certainly but not limited certainly including but not limited to homelessness and that they have a significantly large proportion of female politicians young female politicians even would you agree or disagree with that statement
2: yes i agree generally
1: yeah,
2: you're right but but in relation to to homelessness, I I don't see any difference between female or or male politicians, and and I think that that's also important. Right. But but it's true that we we have a very good, very very progressive female politicians at the moment, and most of the parties has female shares at the moment, which is right. which is rather unique, I think in compared to many other countries?
0: Well, let me let me rephrase. I, I, I mean, I didn't mean to imply that female politicians are necessarily more ethical mm. or more tolerant or more empathetic or more aligned with the causes of something like homelessness or at least the, the the goal of eliminating homelessness than male politicians. I guess what I meant to say is I feel that it's not a coincidence that... Yeah. Uh, the the social progressiveness of Finland is coupled with the fact that there is perhaps a record high level of political involvement of people of both genders. I guess that's that's where I was yes. that's what I was trying to say. Uh,
2: I think that's, it's easy easy to agree with you with you on that, certainly. Yes.
0: A couple more things. You mentioned very briefly th- how the situation has been exacerbated by the pandemic that we're all going through right now. How have the current circumstances that have been so debilitating and frustrating to so many people who have homes, to what extent has it hit harder still what we're all going through with people who are homeless?
2: Well, I think that at least in in the beginning, it looked like it didn't have much effect on on the homelessness population. For for several reasons, and one of the reasons is that we don't have so much that kind of congregated temporary accommodation like shelters and hostels, like like many other countries. Right. And of course, the other issue is that the homeless population is not always very much in in connection with with the other other groups of society. So there were reasons why why it didn't seem to be. Affecting very much, but but now there has been more cases also because we are now I don't remember how many is, is it the fourth wave or what we have now, so there are now more COVID cases also among, among the homeless population. But but the cities seem to have very good plans for how to deal with it, and and, and I, I know also that. Most of the people living in this supported housing, for example, they have been vaccinated already. So it's not significantly more difficult or alarming among, among the homeless population. And I think that the main thing has been that we don't have that level of temporary accommodation. It has saved yeah. us from a lot of problems in in this yeah. respect.
0: Yeah. So I mentioned the, the, the Table Talk series that, that you're involved in. You're involved in numerous... Activities, you, your colleagues, the foundation is involved in numerous activities to try to generate public awareness, to try to give opportunities to people to encounter like minded individuals, to try to, to dream about a, a better society. One initiative that, that I know you're interested in, one of many, is uh, Dimas Helsinki and mm-hmm. Untitled and the Future Festival and so forth. Perhaps you can give me a little bit more of a sense of what that's all about, what future plans are, and to what extent, again, in the spirit of optimism, to what extent you're optimistic about these and other related initiatives making a difference and changing hearts and minds.
2: Well, this Untitled is a rather unique thing and what has been wonderful for for me to see a huge amount of Young, eager professionals in different branches from from around the globe taking part in the in the discussions. Of course, it's not. It's only the second year, as uh, <laughs> as you probably have read. We have this timeline to 2030 when we we have been reimagining the society. So right. this is one of the reasons why I still have this kind of optimism because there are so so clever and and so innovative people involved in these discussions that they have to lead to something concrete also what we are doing with 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 my foundation in this context we are trying to experiment with a, a very concrete building project which which tries to find new ways how how we could preserve the biodiversity also so it's a It's even more ambitious than a building that aims to to carbon neutrality Mm. which is of course crucially important also. It's going to be a wooden construction that has a very hopefully a very light touch with with the ground. So it can be built on on different sites. And we have a great architect, Bekko Pakane, working in, in that project, and that's rather fascinating. It's still in the early phases, but we try to solve some issues con- concerning construction that would take also in in regard of the of the, the biodiversity how to preserve it so it's fascinating but it's a rather long story so <laughs> i only only wish that it would become concrete within a couple of the next years because actually I'm going to retire from my present post next spring so. I really would like to see that building ready at, at some point.
0: So a, a few follow-up questions, and then I'll let you go. So the first is, uh, if I am some young, vigorous, innovative individual filled with all sorts of ideas, and I want to somehow involve myself with these sorts of initiatives, yeah, what should I do?
2: Well, you can always contact Demos Helsinki. they will immediately <laughs> answer to you and you are more than welcome to join the people working in in this Untitled. So there are different ways, different roles that you can you can have. You can have your own own thing that you want to develop, and you can get a whole bunch of networks around the globe with like-minded people who can give you new ideas. and It's a wonderful, unique collective. This this Untitled, and I of course I really hope that I could be involved in that also also in, in the future because how i see it I, I think that in your in your life you have certain phases and and when you are young you may have radical ideas because you don't know yet but then when you grow old enough like i'm now 67 when you grow old enough you get new radical ideas because now you know <laughs> <laughs> or at least you think you know <laughs>
0: So I was going to ask you what you're going to do with your retirement, and I, I'm already starting to get an idea. So I think you answered that one. You, you're, yes. going to, you're going to work on your radical ideas, and then you're going yes. to implement them, but you're yes, going to save the world.
2: Yes, yes. That, that's my plan. And of course, I have a whole lot of books to read still. <laughs> of course.
0: So you have, this has really been very enjoyable for me. Do you have anything you'd like to add? Is there anything we missed or we didn't dwell on sufficiently or, or you think deserves further comment? No, uh,
2: it, it, was, it was very nice to talk with you, and I think that I've exhausted my <laughs> my, my ideas. As I said, we, we don't speak too much, so this has been a real effort for me <laughs> over two hours.
0: <laughs> I've, I've pushed you well past your monthly quota yeah. <laughs> conversation. Yes,
2: yes. But, but it, was, it was more than fun. I really appreciate your, your contact and having this discussion. I hope you can get some, something sensible out of it.
0: I'm sure that won't be a problem. And your story is very, very inspirational. And I suppose the, the only regret that I have is that you are such a modest and self-effacing individual that the sheer magnitude of what you have done may not have been as easily recognized to people as it should have been. But believe me, <laughs> uh, it, 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 is, it is deeply impressive. And, and I think all of us on planet Earth owe you a great deal of thanks, or at least the right thinking ones on planet Earth.
2: Oh, Thank you very much for your words. It means a lot to me, this kind of feedback. It's all I need.
0: <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to IdeasRoadshow.com, while those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in are recommended to visit HowardBurton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into to another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.